What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hi, all. Aisha here, phoning into our Brooklyn studios from sunny L.A., where I'm taking a much-needed vacation. So a quick note before this week's episode. Last week, we talked to Marley Matlin about her amazing career and work as a deaf and disabilities advocate. And in my intro, I used an outdated term to refer to people with hearing loss that has been rejected by many in the deaf community. And we here at Represent are deeply sorry for this and are grateful to the readers who pointed this out. I believe that that's how we all learn and do better, and that's one of the reasons why I do Represent in the first place. Head over to our show page for links to resources we found helpful around this subject. The following podcast contains explicit language. Broken pussy. Maybe it's dry as hell. Maybe it really smells broken pussy. Oh my God, she's talking about me. Maybe it's really rough. Maybe it's had enough broken pussy. Hey, y'all. I'm Aisha Harris, and welcome back to Represent. That clip you just heard is from one of my favorite shows from last year, Insecure. You may recall that we last discussed Issa Rae's hit HBO dramedy way back in episode 21 with Jezebel's Kara Brown. For today's episode, we were lucky enough to bring Insecure showrunner Prentice Penny to our studios. And of course, we discussed much of the drama that occurred in the first season between Issa, her best friend Molly, and her estranged boyfriend Lawrence, as well as that explosive finale episode. So if you haven't caught up with Insecure yet, you should probably maybe not listen to this episode until afterwards. There are lots of spoilers here. You've been warned. We also dove into Prentice's new lifestyle series called Upscale, currently airing on True TV, in which he explores ways in which to broaden one's horizons on topics as varied as cooking and date night. And finally, we got into how he got his start as a writer on another one of my personal favorites, the early aughts sitcom Girlfriends. So let's just jump right into it. So welcome, Prentice. Thank you. It's so great to have you on. You have a new show, Upscale, yes. on True TV. And, you know, in the opening credits, you say that you realized after kind of upscaling your life that you could have been living that life beforehand. Yeah. I'm Prentice Petty, and this is where I grew up, Windsor Hills, California, specifically that house. Like most of us, I thought the good things in life were out of my reach. Now I'm a husband, father, TV writer, and I work my ass off just like the next man. I haven't changed as a person, but I know Andy Samberg. You know what I found out? I could have always been living that scale life. I just didn't know it. Can you elaborate on what that means and like 
how could you have been living that life before? Sure. I mean, first of all, I should like preface it by saying I, I do not currently live a lavish lifestyle. <laughs> I have three children and a very bougie wife. So uh, <laughs> so I'm not necessarily living a, a lavish life. You live a bougie life. I, I live a I live like a Migos, better bougie life a little bit. But, nice. but I have to do it smart. I mean, you know, it's like I got kids I'm paying for school and trying to put my way for college and retirement. So it's not, it's not like a lot of disposable income chilling around. Yeah. But it's Part of that to me it was mostly about like again like growing up I grew up like every we all grew, grew up in a similar in some similar way right like my dad we just go to the grocery store we buy some hamburger meat some craft singles or whatever we could you know afford and we make hamburgers cheeseburgers and it's what it was and um, as I got older and you know I was around other writers but beyond that I think you just get older and you start to you do things the way your parents sort of taught you mm-hmm. you know you kind of do what you learn and then. But you get older, you get around other people who have other experiences and you start to like learn other things, right? So you start to learn that like, oh, I can go to Trader Joe's or I can go to a Whole Foods or I can go to an actual butcher, right? And I can spend a couple of bucks more, but like that meat that I get there is going to be a million times better. Or there's a store, there are stores that just sell cheese. They're cheese stores. I and love I can go, stores. you know what I mean? Like yeah. I can go, I can go, I don't just have to do the craft singles. I yeah. can do a cheddar or a Moonster or a Swiss or a provolone. And then wait, I like you get there and you start to find out more stuff. There's more than just one kind of blue cheese. There's more than one kind of cheddar. There's white cheddar. I mean, so you just start to for me, it was about starting to be around things and just ask more questions and just say, is this the way? The way I learned. Is that the way it always just has to be? Mm-hmm. And a lot of those things don't really have to do with the with money per se. Like sometimes, like in the show, we do an episode around date night where one of the segments is just upskilling your etiquette. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where that's not even a cost thing. That's just a hey, this is just a way to like live better, or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for us, it's like the show. For me, I was always like, look, I never want to. I never wanted the show to feel subjective, right? And what I meant by that is I never wanted to be the arbiter of like what to tell you what's hot. Because one, that's trendy and that changes. And two, your taste may not be my taste. And I never, I was not the expert in any of these things. So I was just like, hey, we're going into these worlds. You're already buying meat. You're already buying cheese. You're already buying shoes. But here's information and here's things that you can explore that you thought was probably out of your range or you couldn't do or you had to be a rapper or an athlete to sort of do. And it's like you could just be a regular human being like going to a shoe cobbler like i had never been to a shoe cobbler before like women are up like women have a cobbler game together dude you you have especially in new york like my my boots uh-huh as suit like i get one season out of them before i need to have them re- resold and rehealed right it's annoying but like most people yeah. and i'm like i'm sure most guys but a lot of people shoes get old throw them away mm-hmm. buy new shoes and it's like no you don't have to do that you can go to a shoe cobbler they can resole your shoes re-stitch like re-leather you know shine them but then i learned there that shoe cobblers just don't deal with shoes they also fix belts and all things leather and jackets and purses and bag and bags and backpacks and they so i just again it's like just feeling free to ask questions so many times i think we walk into stores and somebody goes do you need help and you just go no i'm fine but you actually need help but you just don't want to feel stupid yeah and i'm guilty of that still to this day but so the show is just to say hey like feel free to ask questions feel free to explore these things you thought or like on Inst- that, you know, you know, Rick Ross can only do. It's like, no, we could all do these things. You know what I mean? And so much of the show has really has nothing to do with actually money. Yeah, I mean, it's it's 
the way you put it that way, it seems way less. <laughs> Remember uh, Mr. Bentley, the the dude who was like yeah. holding P- yeah. <laughs> Puffy, <laughs> Puffy's uh, yeah, uh, Bentley Farnsworth carrying around yeah, the umbrella. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, Farnsworth Bentley. Yeah, and and he that was like just strictly about like how can you have like the most expensive like suit and, and all that stuff. Right. Whereas this is a little more practical. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're already doing these things in your life. Here's a way to do them better. And if you don't want to do them, that's cool too. It's not like saying this is the way you have to, or you're always going to do these things. You know what I mean? It's just like if, but if if you want to hear. Yeah. I mean, do you think that this sort of comes to the idea? I don't know how you grew up if you were like middle class or like, you know, not like working class. Um, but there is like a sense that when you are come from a certain class and also people of color, we aren't necessarily growing up exposed to those sorts for of sure, things. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And and so like I, that's what I find interesting about this show is that you are like you, you're also broadening the horizons of like the experiences that like people of color and working class people can experience like there are other ways to to do these things and do it like not expensively yeah no and that's so funny because i was like that was a big reason why i mean i never had any desire to get in front of the camera i was my friends and i were just actually having these sort of grown-up big boy life changes like you eventually got to buy a nice suit you eventually have to like stop drinking kirkland vodka because it's gonna give you a headache and you can't go to work (laughs) you gotta like kind of do a little bit better you know what i mean and so but for me, I was a big fan of, like, Chef's Table and, like, you know, Bourdain and all these guys. But I felt like I never seen anybody who looks like me or my friends, mm-hmm. right? I never see that image reflected of the things that we do. Like, black people travel. We're out there. But we don't see that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we never see us talk about wine or champagne. So, to me, it was, I was like, where am I? And, like, again, somebody who grew up on hip-hop, like, it was important that the show have that element in it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That the show feel musically right. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. For me, I was like, I want to see somebody of my age and generation and, and influence and like the things that I didn't see growing up that I thought only white people and mainstream people could do. Where am I? Yeah. And for your kids, like, what are some of the things that you're exposing them to to like that you didn't get to do as a kid? Well, I think, you know, like my family growing up, their mantra was like, if you know more, you'll do more. Right. So we didn't always necessarily have all the money to do all those things, but it was just about we're going to go out to eat just so you know what how to act when we go out to eat. Yeah. It didn't matter if the place was Sizzler or a nice restaurant or a middle restaurant or whatever. It was like when you're out, you need to know how to act. You know what I mean? Yeah, and the so, etiquette. Yeah. yeah, the etiquette of that. And so for me, I was like, like I didn't know about shoe collars growing up. I didn't know that I could get a suit made and it was kind of going to be the same price, something off the rack, and it was going to fit me a million times better. Like, I didn't know these things. So I think just proxy of, like, my kids knowing that I'm talking about these things and that these things actually exist, just it's things like that. Like, it's, it's little things that, you know, we think that sometimes in life it always has to be these big um, benchmark things that impact our children when really it's the day-to-day things they see on a constant basis that actually shapes them. Like, again, like the hamburger thing with my dad, that was just a daily thing. After church, we go get hamburger meat. Like, that was a thing. It, but it was so repetitive that you just assume this is the way it has to be done. And um, so for me, it's like saying with my kids, we'll, we'll go to a butcher. We'll go to Whole Foods. We'll still go to the grocery store, too, and buy regular stuff, too. It's not that we stop doing these things. It's just saying, hey, these things exist. And if I want to go buy a steak from the butcher today, as opposed to getting the steak from Ralph's or Gross Kroger, wherever you go, I got the option to do that. And I know, okay, this steak may be $2 more, but the quality of that steak is going to be, like, infinitely, you know, better. Yes, way better. As long as you don't 
cook it too long. As long as you don't cook it too right, right. You uh, guys cook it right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's another thing. Black people love to... They love cook. a well done. I know. Black people love I, a well done. I used to love well done too. And then I nah. finally, like you, I upscaled a little bit. You gotta... <laughs> but again, it's just knowing more, doing more, and being being okay to try more. You yes. know what I mean? Like that's, that's just part of it. Yeah, you know? for sure. So you have this show. You also now are an executive producer and... You know, I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of writers of color about sort of their experiences um, trying to get into the writers' rooms sure. on it's within television, and you know, unlike a lot of their white peers, it's not about knowing someone connected to the industry. A lot of them don't know anyone right. connected to the industry. They're going through diversity programs through you know ABC, all those other networks. So, how did you get to where you are now? Like, what was your starting point in like? What was that like for you to navigate that? Yeah, well, when I started, there were less programs than what there are now, yeah. obviously. Um, when I got started, my wife had met this woman. Um, her name was Karen Gist, who was a lawyer who had become a writer. And they, my wife and her went to Spelman, although they didn't know each other at Spelman. Mm-hmm. So shout out to Spelman for <laughs> uh, building connections. And uh, they just went to this like alumni barbecue because they both were in L.A. Um, and my wife was like, oh, my boyfriend, like we weren't married yet. Uh, wants to be a writer, and Karen was a writer trainee, which is like a like basically like a diver- like a diversity hire on Girlfriends. Mm. And shout out to Karen, um, who now is on Grey's Anatomy, who's about to do some other big things. But she didn't have to like look out for me or whatever. But she was like, "Well, give him my number." You know, you hit that all the time. Oh, get-. and then like they don't do anything. Yeah. And Karen like talked to me on the phone for like three hours. The first time I ever talked to, her. never met this person, and. She just was, like, so generous and so kind and was like, well, let's keep staying in touch. These are the things you have to do. And Was she, like, offering you advice like, or just oh, asking sure. you about you? No, no, no. Yeah. She was offering me advice. She was telling me how she got there. She was telling me, you know, I'll keep an ear out on girlfriends because she was just new, too. She was, she was an attorney. and she was, This was her first year as a writer. But she got in through the diversity program that, that Marv Rocket-Kill, who created Girlfriends, was a big fan of and big advocate of. And... Uh, she was like, let's just talk. I'll read whatever you want me to read and let's just keep working. Well, you know, and if opportunity comes up, of course I'll submit you and share them your stuff. So they weren't doing their program for a couple of years and then one year, but she would always read my stuff and give me notes. And then one year she was like, hey, I think we're going to do the program this year. So give me your script. It's really good. Um, I think I'd written a scrubs. And she was like, and she gave them my script and brought, they brought me in for an interview and that's how I got my job. I mean, that it's kind of... But that took nine years. Right. So what? So from the point where you met her and talked to her and by the time you got to Girlfriends was... That was three years in between there. Okay, got it. So and... I was a substitute teacher. I worked at a nonprofit. Oh, wow. I worked at a group home. I was a tutor at Sylvan Learning Center. So I was like working for other jobs and my, you know, God bless my wife for, you know, <laughs> believing in me when yeah. I, I had no proof. <laughs> And once you got to the Girlfriends, what season were they on by They then? were starting season five. Okay. So I was still, I still was there four more years because we went eight years. Right, yeah. So I got there at the end of season four, going into season five. And what was it like? I mean, I feel like in a way you were kind of lucky because, you know, a lot of the writers of color I've spoken to, like, they don't necessarily get to go into an environment that is diverse. For sure. And I imagine Girlfriends was very, there were women, there were people yeah. of color. What was the writer's room like there? Yeah, the writer's room, I would say, was probably 60, 40, 70, 30, black to white, mm-hmm. and obviously very heavy uh, African-American women. Yeah. Um, but I always say, like, going starting on Girlfriends was like Hillman. 
right? It was like, <laughs> this is safe. We're all about the same agenda. We're all having, we're all like, there's no, there was no egos involved. There was no like agenda pushing. There was no like, it was all about helping me succeed, mm-hmm. not making me feel isolated or uncomfortable or any of those types of things. So that they were very, it was probably the best. And I just learned so much from Mara. Like so much of how I run my room now is like, I don't know, 80% of the things I learned from Mara. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like your first parent, right? It's like, it's like you learn so much from your mom and dad, right? Yeah. And she was like my mom in this business. Um, her and this other writer who I actually work with now named Regina Hicks just taught me so much. And just obviously about life. And But again, how to run a show and, um, you know, what's important and those types of things. And I just got to see strong black women be unapologetically strong black women Mm -hmm. and it was just a thing that has always stuck with me what is the like if you could name one thing that was the most useful or the thing that you employ now as a showrunner from mara like what is it the two i take two things from mara and the two things i learned from mara was one so much of your job as a showrunner is not is no longer writing right Mm -hmm. because like mara would be Mara had a lot of responsibilities, right? You got to be on set for film days. You got to be in editing. You got to be doing music. You have to, you know, you're reading outlines. You're meeting with the network. You're pitching what the stories are going to be. You're not actually really writing. You're supervising. You're delegating and supervising so many people. It's like the president doesn't deal with, he's not writing economy. You know what I mean? He he has lots of departments to manage. I mean, the the other president, not this one, who's currently. Uh, But, but, you know, there's so much of the job that isn't the job. You know, part of the job is managing. Um, and not actually the, like the physical writing of it. So I just learned that, you know, one, you have to hire smart people and, and so much of the job isn't the thing that got you there. But it's actually, I think successful showrunners are about managing people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to just be good with that. And the other thing I learned is, you know, we would have moments, we would have things in Mar, we'd have jokes and people would say, oh, I don't want to lose this joke. Right. Because but the, something in the story wouldn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. And Mara was always like, look, we can find another joke. We won't be able to find another moment. A moment that resonates with people, like in their soul, in their hearts, in their feelings, and and I, I have held firm to that that I, I'm I don't hold any joke hostage <laughs> if it's sacrificing the story and if it's sacrificing. There's a better moment here happening between people that is going to resonate more than what this joke will ever do. I've forgotten. I can't. I've seen a ton of sitcoms, as I'm sure you have. Oh, yeah. I don't remember jokes on any of them, but I remember moments in sitcoms that are like, oh, when the Cosby family sang Ray Charles, I remember that. Yeah. I remember when Ross and Rachel kissed. You remember Cheer, Sam and Don. Like, you remember moments of things, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think, like, on Insecure, you remember when she and Lawrence got into their fight. You remember the Tasha moment when they're having sex and Issa's on the couch crying. Like, you remember, <laughs> like, I broken not? pussy. Like, you remember, yes. th- like, those are moments that you remember. <laughs> yeah. And they're not always, you don't remember the, the like, if I was like, what's the, in this scene, what was the funniest? You can't remember that, but you just remember how you felt yeah. when you watched. So, so that's the thing I learned from Marv was, like, always remember to make people feel something and, like, never sacrifice the moment for anything else. Can I ask you as like a huge girlfriends fan? Yeah. Who was your favorite? You and Charlemagne are like the biggest people, like like the most I talked about girlfriends with on this trip. I love it. <laughs> I like I I love girlfriends. I need to go back. I actually recently rewatched the first episode for the first time in. It's years. totally different. It's so different. It's so different than the rest of the like season two and on. Yeah, it yeah. was so it was really weird. But who was your favorite character to write for, or like who Ooh. you felt like was like. I don't know, the most entertaining to... I, I always love to write for Maya mm-hmm. Golden. Uh, hey, y'all. What y'all doing? Just trying to piece together a lost evening. Oh, wasn't all lost. 
William and I found our friendship. Girl, don't nobody care. <laughs> now listen, I need you to come with me to Darnell's wedding, please. And I think I related to Golden's character because she was a single mom. Mm-hmm. And, and even though, like, my mom was divorced and even though my dad was around, that I just related to that dynamic of a woman who's like, and like, my mom eventually was a lawyer, but she was a paralegal who went back to school. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of Maya-ness of, like, trying to be a sec- who was a, who was an assistant who, like, tried to write a book. I mean, so there was, there was a lot of, like, emotional connection I felt to empathizing with that character and seeing that she was a mom and all that type of stuff. So I understood that, uh, you know, who's divorced and all that type of stuff. So I think I that just character resonated more with mm-hmm. me. But she was just fun to write. You know, she would just, like, not deal with Joan and she and Tony would go at it and she'd uh, have yeah. a comment for Lynn. And I just it was like, and, she, and, and Golden could just pull off a joke, like, just great. So she was always, like... For me, I always love like when I had like a Maya story in the forefront of my episodes that I wrote. Yeah, ah, uh, yeah, so good. I love that show. <laughs> Who was your favorite? Who was your favorite? Ah, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I gravitated. I, I gravitated between Joan and I think Maya too. I, I felt like, um, why am I hippie? Lynn. Yeah, like, I felt like Lynn was like too, like too. Aloof. She uh-huh. she annoyed me, uh-huh. but like it wasn't. You know, it wasn't. I think she was supposed to. Like we're not supposed to like every character. You know, like and and I'm totally fine with that. But I was just like, if I knew you in real life, I'd want to strangle you. Right. Um, but then the same. Like I felt the same way about you know. Um, why I'm so Tony? terrible with yes, I'm terrible with character names, even for shows I've watched. Yeah. Any, uh, yeah, Tony also would would totally want to 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 murder her. But I I see so many traits. So. Ever since Insecure started, I feel like Molly is so much like Tony. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, like, is that? No, we get that. I mean, I think they, I mean, it's so funny. We were at a party and Jill came by. And it is, they they also physically favor each other, right? They're, right, right, they, right. They, they physically look like, like look like each other. And there hasn't been, I think, probably since Tony, a character who's, like, kind of bougie, you know, yeah. hair flied out, kind of wants to live this perfect life and is sort of wrestling with, is this, is this, is this what my life is supposed to look like? Right? right. And so I think there's a lot of similarities character wise with like a person that has to maintain a perfect facade or is trying to. Mm-hmm. And then what are all the things that are actually behind that, you know? Yeah. So I, and then they also favor each other. So there's a lot of like, you know, we just haven't seen a character be like, you know, black and bougie on TV like that is in a while. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they both just like do all the wrong things. Like you, they, they want these things, but then they self-sabotage in ways that are just like, get it together but we all do that right <laughs> yes right. yes we do i i just feel like some of us don't do it as to that degree well you know what's so funny it's like no we don't self-sabotage right but we all we often talk about in the writer's room that like we often think we're the hero of our own story and yeah. we're actually not right mm-hmm. if you were to take if you were to take your day and put it through somebody else's filter how did how does it look like we you know what i mean yeah yeah and so it, i think she makes choices that are inherently rooted in the things that she hasn't dealt with, right? In the, in the dark places that we don't share with people, um, you know, we wrestle with those things. And I think, you know, she's so sabotages. Somebody else does this. Somebody like Issa's character is afraid to go for what she wants. She kind of has a passively, like this sort of aggressively passive thing. And she makes choices that are bad because she's afraid to vocalize things. You know what yeah, I mean? So yeah. I think they, like, we all deal with these things, right? We all deal with our insecurities. No, obviously, pun intended, but it's like, how do they manifest themselves? You know? 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You didn't know Issa before you started working together on the show. And, you know, this is her sort of baby, her brainchild. She's the star. Um, There's a lot of elements of her web series, Awkward Black Girl, which I was loved and also obviously love Insecure. But, like, what, what is it like for you now? So you have all that experience with Mara. And now you are helping someone else execute their vision, like from the top, like from the mm-hmm. top, instead of being just in the writer's room. So, what is it like to work with Isa and and sort of go back and forth on these things and help her bring her vision to to the screen? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I'm just always about what I learned from Mara is like you know pay it forward. Like that's the thing that I think what's always amazes me. What amazed me about Karen. Uh, who helped give me the shot was like, who, who at least helped me get into position for that mm-hmm. was like, she didn't have to do any of that stuff. Right. So that to me, that means like that knowledge and all that stuff isn't mine to hold. And who am I holding it for? The whole goal is to like share it and pass it to somebody else. And, you know, I don't like, nobody needs to help Issa tell her vision. I mean, she, she, she is her vision and she made her vision regardless. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she's smart and creative and funny and amazing and generous and all those things. So like my thing is just really to take the things I've learned and say, how do we, and Issa's also said this is like, you know, whereas awkward black girl, the web series would be like a college version of the show. How do you make like a grown up version of that? Like all the things that people love about awkward black girl, but now like grow it up and, mm-hmm. and do it and, and make it more mature and sophisticated and, and all those things now that you have other elements and things that can help like Melina Matsukis, our director, who's awesome. And, you know, Solange and Raphael with music. It's like, again, how do you just take the things that people love at its core mm-hmm. and, and make that, you know, be amazing in all the ways you can. And so for me, it's just, um, you know, we have a, a a huge amount of respect for each other and what the other does. When you were putting together the writer's room, what were you looking for for season one? Like, because you, I assume you had like an idea from what Issa, you know, she wrote her, her spec script or her pilot. Um, and so like, what were you looking for to assemble within your writings, writer's room in terms of like, just... Not just skill, but like sensibility. Yeah, yeah. For for me, it was like in again, like like learning on girlfriends. And I think once I got into the into the mainstream world and wrote, wrote on more mainstream shows, like until I got back to Insecure, I was always the only writer of color. I mean, I might I might have been. I was certainly the only black writer. Mm. Um, and what? Were, sorry, what was that like? Just to like sort of diverge a bit for a second. Uh, I mean, it's like any other job when you're the only what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. people were great. People were kind of had great experiences. Like, it's no knock on any... I didn't have anything where I felt like... I was also blessed to be on great shows because I've been on shows where I've, I've heard from stories of people who've been on shows where you're like, this guy was crazy and da-da-da. But all the writing I was on, like Scrubs, Happy Endings, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, like, they were all... I mean, I really have to say, like, I have not had a experience where I was like, oh my God, this person was insane. I had to get the fuck out of there. They're like, they're nuts. So I never had that experience. I, I certainly had, I'm the only one who looks like me and yeah. you're always aware of like, okay, how do I 
come across or I mean you always have to do that extra level of like you know other white guys in the room could probably just pitch freely without and could get excited or upset or passionate about pushing their point and you know if I do it the same way it's could be perceived a certain way so you're always you know you're always trying to play chess where everybody else is playing checkers right with a right. person of color you're always doing that right so so for me but but weirdly also growing up I had a growing up I had an upbringing where when my parents divorced and I think this helped me was my my parents were very different. My mom was very much like very bougie middle class. If it's white, it's right. Like if you white kids do it, you're gonna do it. Cause she wanted to expose. She didn't want me to have any sort of weird like I don't know what what I don't have the same thing white kids have as opportunities. But my dad was like self-made and was like black everything black you know we go into black schools playing in black neighborhoods we're gonna eat black food you know he did was, you do jack and jill i wasn't jack and i jill. was too really <laughs> i did not have a good experience myself really? <laughs> but it... well, i met my wife in jack and jill so oh, that's, really? it's crazy oh that's yeah. crazy yeah. so i think it depends on where you are too <laughs> yeah i was in connecticut it was not as it was yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I could tell stories, but yeah, no, yeah. So yeah, so uh, so so that's how I grew up, and so my, my my parents sort of had this thing where if I went to, and I didn't find this out till kind of later, but the elementary school I went to was black. So, but then I had to go play sports and camp in the summer with white kids. So I would be learning like you know Run DMC and all this hip hop at my black school and then I go to the summer camp and they don't know that stuff. They only know like, like the police and, 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 you know, like Billy Idol, John Cougar Mellicamp. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know Duran Duran. So I'd spend all summer like learning Cindy Lauper songs and Duran Duran. Then I go back to school with my black friends and they're like, what, like, what are you listening to? So, <laughs> and I would spend like that. I would be like that for like eight years of doing this sort of round robin and kind of, Code switching. Code switching all the time. Yeah, and so yeah. when I, so saying that to say, I mean, nowadays, what you, I mean, nowadays it was like, I was always the black kid in the, in the summer camp pamphlet of like, why is the black kid <laughs> in every activity? We don't have anybody else. <laughs> so it was, uh, so, so that's how my upbringing was. And so like nowadays it was just basically like parents be like, oh, we just want him to have like a diverse upbringing. Like now, yeah. but in the eighties, everything was very, I mean, MTV only played Michael Jackson and that was a fight. They didn't play you know, any hip hop or anything like that. So yeah. being around, being the only one, Again, I think my upbringing prepared me to not be freaked out by that, or I, I couldn't, I could, I could move and understood how to move to a degree, mm. um, just by how I grew up. But yeah, but I mean, you're always aware of a situation. So going back to your question of when we were assembling the room, yeah, I, I felt like sometimes in writers' room you can get, and it's no knock on writers from Harvard, but sometimes you get like six guys, six white guys who wrote on Harvard. So you kind of get a similar voice, right? Yeah. And I think the trouble is writers' rooms can quickly become like an echo chamber of similar thoughts. So you want to have fresh, vo- to me, you always want to have fresh voices. Like I didn't want to, re- Easton, I didn't want to repeat a certain style or a certain skill set, right? It was how do we make things fresh? So when we were assembling the show, it was important for us not to just have comedy writers, but to have drama writers because mm-hmm. there's drama in the show. Uh, we we obviously wanted to have, you know, black women, but we also wanted to have different ages of black women, black women who were in relationships, not in relationships, mm-hmm. black women who were gay, uh, like, you know, men who were gay, men who were straight, men who were married. So we were just trying to find a person that has a darker sense of humor versus somebody who has a really sweet sensibility versus somebody who's really good at a story. You know what I mean? Like, we mm-hmm. didn't need five Isas. We yeah. had Isas. So why would we repeat that? So for us, it was... I mean, we wanted everybody. It's almost like when you put the like the event like the Avengers together. It's not two hooks. You don't need two hooks. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? It's like the hook has a skill set. So you got the hook. You got Iron Man. You got these people. So for us, it was how do we assemble a team of different and interesting voices 
that don't repeat itself. Yeah. And so that that was the most important thing is having uh, each person be their own unique self and thing in the room. Can you talk a bit about what like what was your favorite scene to work on within the first season? Within the first season, I had a couple like the I always just love Issa Molly scenes because they're that's like the heart of the show. That's like at the very core of it. That's the show, right? There are these two women. And then he goes from like calling me every day to sending me text messages. Oh damn! Right? And then this motherfucker got the audacity to hit me with this bullshit. Sorry, I'm not looking for a relationship right now. Sad face. He did not sad face you. I will slap you right, mm-hmm. bitch. That's my life. When Issa and Lawrence are, when she runs into him at the Rite Aid, it's oh, so funny. That was the most uncomfortable. It's super uncomfortable. It's super uncomfortable. And it, it, like Issa wrote that episode, and it was just a, such a funny. When we read it, it was such a funny scene, and you got all the things that were happening on the scene, and just to mind the comedy of that, the uncomfortability of that. Were you in the room like when, or Issa wrote it? Where did you like talk oh, well, about yeah, that we, scene? Oh yeah, I mean yeah. we all break. The, I mean in the writers' room, we all sit there and break what the scene is before. Yeah. I mean so we. So we come up with the idea. We come up with what the, what the outline's going to look like. It's all very detailed before every, anybody goes off to write. Yeah. And then she wrote it. And obviously, they, you know, like she puts her spin on it and goes through her filter. And, um, you know, she comes up with her own jokes and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of the way the structure of it's going to work and, and when she brings it back, we all pitch on it and add jokes and, mm-hmm. you know, figure out what works, what doesn't work. And on set, doing the same thing, adding jokes, pulling stuff. Um so that's a great scene, I, but I also love like a lot of the like the darker, more emotional scenes, like when when um, you know Issa tells Molly that she slept with Daniel, and she's like, "Are you going to do it again?" And she's like, "No." And, and we debated about that scene, like there was going to be a lot of dialogue originally in that scene, and then it kind of just ends up being four lines, which yeah. is she goes, "She did it." Would you do it again? No, they don't tell them. I mean, it's a very, but it's so much is happening in that scene emotionally. Uh, when I, I wrote the breakup episode, episode seven, and so uh, when I was writing the breakup scene, like I was, to me, I was like, I was walking around the office, or in my, I was, I was in my office writing that scene and uh, kind of grumbling to myself and cursing and because I was just like writing what Lawrence would feel, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And like when that, when I got cheated on, I was trying to channel what that was like, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And like write those moments. Um, but then again, like the the end when Issa's just on the couch crying with Molly. I mean, Issa wrote such a great scene and it's a small scene, but it it's so poignant. So I I love the moments that, again, I think the show does something great and it makes you feel something. You know, mm-hmm. Issa um, and y- Yvonne who plays Molly and Jay, obviously Ellis who obviously plays Lawrence, they're just so amazing as actors. I mean, you could almost throw them anything and they'll make it like a million times better. So in any scenes where they're like being real and honest to me are great moments. I mean, one of the things that I appreciated the most about the show is the fact that from the very first episode, so many shows we see now with like, uh, I mean, millennials specifically, but just like characters in general, it's always about them like trying to find a relationship trying to find love like they're single right. how do i how do i navigate my life and then <laughs> right. also find a husband or, or a wife and with this we're starting with i mean molly's sort of on that track but like isa is in a relationship and she's not happy right so i thought that was really just like a really great way to look at things because we're not seeing her she's trying to decide do i want to be in this relationship or not and i'm just curious as to like how you guys like talked about the shape of the dynamic of the relationship and how 
you saw it ending in the first season and where you see it going from from where we left off. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I mean, obviously she and Larry wrote the starting points of characters yeah, and, yeah. and you know it was it was being developed so i'm not sure necessarily if that was an original entry point of the show or not um but in terms of how it shaped the show we we treated the show like um we knew from the pilot right for you to we we kind of knew what the ending of the first season was going to be like we knew we wanted to break them up right mm-hmm. as, as a real thing but we were like, but you're already starting from kind of this negative, right? Especially Lawrence. Like, he starts in such a, he's only in the pilot in two scenes. Like, you barely get this. And it's very easy for that character to become or feel one note. Especially it's like, oh, here, here, here we go. Black women talking about the brother ain't got a job. And, the court. you know, it's like, so a lot of the stuff in the off the pilot was like, even though we had done all the episodes and we knew what's coming, a lot of the stuff in the pilot was like, oh, here we go, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And we would always be like, we would just laugh because we were like, we know where it's going, right? But you can't tell anybody that on Twitter. Right. So <laughs> we just kind of like laugh it off. And then, but we treated the first three episodes like, okay, if you're going to care about these people, we have to, we, if we, if you're going to be invested in caring about the breakup, right? Then we need to treat the first three episodes as like digging Lawrence out of this hole. Mm-hmm. You kind of got to get him back to zero because he's starting in such a, like you wouldn't care if she broke up with this guy because you'd be like, she should broke up with him. She's even talking about breaking up with him. She kind of halfway breaks up with him in the pilot. In the pilot. So for us, it was like, we had to make this guy human. We had to like, why, is how did he get here, right? So our thing was we treated the first three like a trilogy-ish kind of a thing. We had to kind of dig him out of a hole and and get them to kind of a good place because we knew we were going to bring in Daniel. We knew we were going to do these things. We knew that if you, we only had eight episodes. So it was like, yeah. how do you get the people to care? And so for us, and then we treated the last three kind of in a similar way. That sort of six, seven, and eight were kind of an arc, mm-hmm. right? Of, 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 of her wrestling with the guilt and then him finding out who's this text from? Mm-hmm. And then obviously seven and eight kind of unfolding from there. And for you to care, you had to care heat from the beginning, but how do you care? You've, you're starting this guy in such a negative space. So for us, it was always trying to understand, we know we're going to end them breaking up, but how do we start to make people care about this couple? Yeah. And so that was sort of a, and, and to watch alliances shift, right? Cause in the beginning, Ace is our main character. She's always our main character. So you obviously you, you like you you know she's so likable on screen and even in her mistakes you get it you understand how she got there, but then once you then it was like oh Lawrence is so bad he doesn't have a job and then, but around halfway what was mm-hmm. so funny was to watch people start to be like Lawrence is kind of a good dude and like <laughs> and maybe the Issa char- her character isn't as on the up and up as she right so it's all these shades of gray that's what we tried to wrestle that's yeah. what we wanted to show like we never wanted our show to be like here here are the things yeah so and it's all spelled out for you it's like no it's great it's and that, and that's what was something fun about all the debates afterwards all the Lawrence Hive Molly Hive Daniel you know Team Daisy it was like fun because you're watching you're watching people wrestle with it are you okay with her cheating are you not do you justify it are you a, is it is it okay when men do it not, but not okay when women do it or is it okay when she does it and do you just, so that's the gray we all live in so when you said earlier oh i'm watching her sabotage her life it's like nah we just all live in these weird shades of gray and you know we try to excuse what we're comfortable excusing when we want to excuse it but you know again if that's reversed you know i think that's why guys piped up so hard when he was having sex with tasha at the end because it's like oh uh, you know what i mean can we can we talk about <laughs> just really quickly the that end scene so you knew they you were going to break them up mm-hmm. but the way in which the season ends mm-hmm. with you know we're thinking that she's going to go back to her apartment and find Lawrence there back 
to like reconcile. And instead, we realized that Lawrence was only going there before she got there to take all his or, stuff. Or, or he changed his mind once he got there. Or, yes, yes true. Yes. Either way, he's not there and he's pounding Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you guys like wrestle with like that scene, like deciding how you were going to like drop that bomb? Or was that just. How did that happen? So it happened because, like, it was we had broken out the season. This was early on in the process, and we kind of had a slow burn. Where actually, the season first was going to end on, or seven was the seven episode was going to be her finally sleeping with Daniel, mm-hmm. right? And then HBO was like, so much of the juice is happening late in the season. Move, move a lot of that stuff up. So then we, so once we sort of reconfigured and moved the end of the season to the front, the Daniel sleeping episode was like episode. Five. Four or five, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it was kind of, it was early. So they were like, okay, so in a fun way, it was like we had pushed this rock up a hill mm-hmm. and now we just going to let it go. Yeah. So originally it was Lawrence finding out, episode seven was originally going to be episode eight. There was no episode eight. It was going to all culminate with Issa's life sort of blowing up Bali and her fighting, Jay, I mean like Lawrence and her arguing in the season. But then another one of our writers was like, usually the seventh episode is when you blow it up at least for HBO and eight is when you kind of figure out how do we get out of this. So then that became another challenge. Cause it was like, we had painted ourselves to almost to build to this finale, which is the breakup and her and Molly fighting. And it was like, well, damn, we blew this thing up. How do we uh, tell another story? Then they became kind of fun. Right. So then we went back to, okay, the core of the show is Issa and Molly. So that's the relationship that has to be repaired mm-hmm. in episode eight. Right. So L- Lawrence and Issa can be whatever we need that to be to tell the story. But it's, Issa and Molly got to get fixed, right? That's yeah. the core of the show. So weirdly, the season was supposed to end where Issa comes home, just the Best Buy shirt is there, and then crying on the couch. That was the initial end. Mm-hmm. And our pitch was, we talked about this in the room, we said, look, we'll start season two with open on just like Lawrence and Tasha having crazy sex. We'll just open and we like, because we were like, because we said, oh, we'll just leave it hanging about where Lawrence went. Mm-hmm. And we'll just, we just won't say and then we'll open season two on it. But then we were like, you know, we, like we may not get a season two. So we don't know. So let's so let's do it where you when she comes home, he's gone, and then we'll cut to where he is, which is having sex with Tasha, and then Issa's there. And it's so funny because it wasn't an orchestrated thought from the initial from the beginning of break finish figuring out what that episode was. It right. kind of became this thought of Something we'll do in two, and but let's add it here. Let's see what happens. And so they get people's visceral reaction. Because what's funny is Issa doesn't know where he is. She has no idea where she's at. But we know. Mm-hmm. So it makes the moment she's on the couch crying even more impactful because she she's none the wiser. He could literally be at Chad's house. He could be with his, like at a hotel. But because we know where he's at, it does something else visceral yeah. you know what I mean so but it, it wasn't an orchestrated thought from the beginning it kind of became a thing I'm so glad you got a season two <laughs> you're getting a season two are there any hints you can give for like where we're going I can just say that it'll be all the things you loved with like new characters and new people and expanding their lives and you know I think this season is like if you think about how your friends are after they break up and the mistakes they make and how raw they are and what what you do when you mask things, you project things, you act out, that is probably going to be things that are in that vein that they're all doing. Because they're all, because like Molly had to deal, is is facing the way she's been living her life. Yeah. You know, Issa and Lawrence are obviously not, you know, like currently together. So, you know, it, you know, people do things when they're 
figuring out after breakups and they make certain mistakes and do things and we'll sort of explore, you know, people who are raw, emotionally raw and mm-hmm. still hurting. And so we'll, we're dealing with it. all the things your friends did or, and you do. Those things are probably going to be in the show. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I end all of my interviews with this question. If you could answer it, that would be lovely. Sure. When is the last time you saw something on screen that you weren't directly involved with, um, where you felt represented in some way, where you felt as though you saw yourself in a movie, a character, Mm -hmm. a TV show? Uh, I mean, this is going to sound like too timely, but I think Moonlight. Is is everybody saying Moonlight? (laughs) Everyone says But here's why I say Moonlight. Here's here's why I say Moonlight. And And I'll tell you the thing. Okay. I had I have three kids. Mm-hmm. The only time I go to the movies is to see le- like Lego Batman's, you know, trolls. I don't go to the movies I'm so sorry. at all. And I know <laughs> it's they're good movies. Yeah, but it's what it is. Uh, <laughs> so I had not seen Moonlight. I had not seen it after it won the Oscar. I had rented it on Amazon, and I was like, I should watch. I'm going to watch this. And I had two more days left in my rental queue to watch Moonlight. And I was like, I got. I was working. I was editing upscale. And I got home at like 11 at night. And I was like, I got two more days. If I, don't, it's a, I was like, if I don't watch this now, I'm not going to watch it. I had heard about it, all these things, whatever. I had met, I'd met Barry, still hadn't seen the movie, lied, said I'd seen it, had not seen it. <laughs> well, now, now, now he might know. No, he knows. I, I, I've talked to him since then. So I was like, I should just watch this movie. What I've felt when I watched it, I was like, I just thought it was so dope. What I love that is similar to what I think we try to do on Insecure is I just loved seeing the smallness of life. Like things that could that are, there's not a lot of talking in that movie. Mm-hmm. That the movie moves very slow and, I, and purposefully so. And so for me, it wasn't about seeing black men on screen because I could, I could turn to Empire if I want to see black people on screen or I could turn it is if I want to see, if I really just wanted to see Black people on a TV screen. We have so many options now. Certainly, a more, lot. Certainly more than you Before. know times past. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it was about seeing moments that are very like small and specific, right? Like, um, and not the scenes that are super poignant. Like not like obviously the scene on the beach when he has his first experience is amazing, mm-hmm. but that's not really to me. Like the moments that I appreciated were the moments when um, I'm gonna go get his name wrong. What's the, what's the dude on on right from, from Luke the guy that won? Uh, oh, um, Mahershala Ali. Yeah, Ali. I messed it up, so I ain't one. <laughs> but when he's just like trying to get the young kid to talk in the car, mm-hmm. just to talk, yeah. and I was like, that's what it, being a father's like, right? So I'm a father, right? So those are the moments that are like I know when you're trying to connect, right? And when like my father and I were wrestling with growing up, when you're when a father's trying to connect to a son. That's really what that scene is. It's like, forget that they're not father and son. They are father and son. He taught him life. And so for me, it was just seeing small because we never get to do these sort of slice, you know, complexity. Like when, you know, he, he busts the mom out for selling drugs to her. And it's like, it's such a, like, you don't see a man like that typically wrestle with the morality and trying, or trying to find morality in what he's doing and figuring it out. And I think, that's what so that's what I loved about that movie were all these sort of really small, basic, quiet moments that to me just felt just real. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we might have to like put a moratorium on people saying Moonlight at this point. Like everyone has said it. But I think it's a testament to how 
powerful that movie really is, is that it has touched so many different people. For sure. And like you said, it's like the small moments that are just so real. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have you on Prentice. And Upscale is on True TV. We'll put a link to the show in our show page and everyone should check it out. Thank you. iTunes, Amazon, all that good stuff. Yeah. That's all for today. That was a really good conversation. Thanks so much for coming on, Prentice. I wish I could have gotten a little bit more out of him about what's going down in season two of Insecure, but you know how those things go. I tried. Be sure to head over to our Facebook page, Slate Represent, to share your thoughts on today's episode. And as always, if you're not already subscribing to us, do so on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. And after you've done that, rate us. And again, we are having our very first live show coming up soon on April 24th at 6.45 in Manhattan, part of the Tribeca Film Festival. It's going to be exciting. Get your tickets, slate.com slash live. We'll also link to it. Represent is produced by the lovely, wonderful Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. That music you are hearing is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next.